This month's episode of the dramatic reading of William Rossler's Secrets by Casey will not be heard so we can bring you the following special presentation. Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer Gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Welcome everyone to the 1951 Down Place podcast, your home for Hammer Films discussion. This is episode number 30 for February 2014. My name is Scott and I'm the understudy of the show. The megastars Derek and Casey are in their respective dressing rooms and couldn't be bothered at this time. That's right. In fact, it's the 40th age of Aquarius around here as it's Casey's birthday month. And his choice for Hammer Film for us to cover is 1971's Lust for a Vampire. Directed by Jimmy Sangster and starring Yuda Sinsgar, Michael Johnson, and Barbara Jefford. The film is the second in Hammer's Karnstein trilogy. The first was The Vampire Lovers from 1970 and covered on this show here in episode number six. And the third Karnstein film was Twins of Evil from 1971, and we cover that one here in episode number 12. Lust for a Vampire appears to be as well-known for the people who were originally associated with it as those who are actually are. Due to health reasons, Jimmy Sangster replaced Terrence Fisher in the director's chair at very short notice. Peter Cushing was originally going to play the lead role of Giles Barton, but backed out to care for his wife, and Ingrid Pitt turned down the offer to return as Camilla because she didn't care for the script. Now we'll return with 1951's downplace coverage of Lust for a Vampire right after this word. Welcome, everyone. This fall on Channel 52 comes the hottest afternoon drama on TV, The Lusty Vampire. Come with us to the sleepy little town of Karnstein Corners, where all is not as it seems. Starting with the town's political connected family, the Mortons. The family is led by its matriarch, Ingrid. Roger, you don't want a part of me. There's more to me and my family than you could possibly handle. Come on, Ingrid, what happened to you? Remember all the fun you, Cammy, and I used to have? Oh, Roger, college was many years ago, and I've changed. You should leave before it gets dark. The Worldens is thrown into chaos when the mysterious Brock Van Henning moves into town, and members of the Morton family start to disappear. You need to keep your nose out of our business, Brock, or else... Or else what, Ingrid? What could you possibly do to me? There's a new power in Karnstein Corners, and it's the end of your kind. The Lusty Vampire, weekdays this fall on Channel 52, a proud sponsor of the 1951 Downplace Podcast. C-3PO Loki Mace Windu Dr. Bruce Banner Captain Rex Venom Princess Leia Jean Grey Darth Maul 
Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. This is Victor Von Psychotron, host of Weirdorama, and you are listening to 1951 Down Place, the place for Hammer Film knowledge on the web. If you think all vampires are ugly creatures of the night, then you are in for a shattering surprise. If the very thought of vampires makes your flesh creep, if the sight of dripping blood makes your heart skip a beat, the sound of tortured screams leaves you quivering with fright, then you must see Lust for a Vampire. Disciples of the Black Mass, devils in female bodies whose embrace is the kiss of death for man or woman. The lust of a vampire is a bloodlust for love and death. Lust for a Vampire. Released by American Continental Films in color. Rated R. If the very thought of vampires makes your flesh creep. We call them the undead, sir. They're vampires. If you think all vampires are ugly creatures of the night, then you're in for a shattering surprise. This fresh, warm blood into a body of thy making. Welcome to the most exclusive finishing school in Europe, where the quest for knowledge continues long into the night. You see, I have studied your magic. I know the black art, and I want only to know more and more. Here, the masters are quick to recognize an outstanding pupil. The portrait of Camilla Karnstein, died 1710, 120 years ago. And do you know who the portrait was of, Mirkala? It was you. Welcome to the finishing school, where they really do finish you.
I spent the whole of last night going through Giles' researches. And believe me, they are powerful evidence. Evidence? Of what? That you are a vampire. You say that. And tell me you love me. Prove to me that you're not. Love me. On 1951 Down Place, Casey picked the movie. It's his birthday. Tradition here on the show is that the birthday boy gets to pick the show. And for his birthday, he gave to us a very young, 25-year-old, topless Danish woman in Lustburg Empire. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> How's it going, gang? It's going, considering I'm 40 now. It's all downhill from here, brother. Yep. It's getting a little old and creaky. Man, you're young. <laughs> Fortunately, we have Scott blazing the trail for us in that regard. So, <laughs> yeah, I resemble that remark. <laughs> How are you doing, Scott? Okay, not too bad. We had a birthday around here as well as my wife's birthday was yesterday. So, as a uh, birthday present to her, she got to watch the last uh, twenty thirty minutes of this film. <laughs> wow, this is just amazing! Like an amazing gift. See, for my wife, I gave her the gift of singing the song Strange Love, chasing her around the house like that. So That would be very strange love. So Lust for a Vampire. This is the second of the three official Karnstein films from Hammer. I say official because at one point, and I think Casey brought this up, there might be a Karnstein connection to Captain Kronos. But, uh, yeah, it's very vague. Very vague. But this is the second of the three films. The first one being The Vampire Lovers. Is that the first one? No, Twins of Evil is the first one. No. Twins, Twins of Evil is the third one. Yes. I get them confused. You Ingrid need to burn Pitt that you're reading. That's true. I, I emailed these guys and told them that this book that I was reading for research actually identified Lust for a Vampire as the third film versus the second film. Well, you guys heard the introduction to the show. Scott identified this as a second film, and we knew Scott couldn't be wrong, so clearly my book was flawed. <laughs> it must have been a misprint. But this is the second film, and this is the second film that they started talking about making two days after they started working on the first film. So they were pretty confident in themselves. Carreras and company thought they had something. Brought Tudor Gates back to write the screenplay. He wrote the original film as well, and they started developing the movie. It was originally going to be called To Love a Vampire. Uh, actually, Bernard Defont from the Associated Picture Corporation suggested the title change to Lust for a Vampire. They should have waited a third day. Give it a little more thought. And almost nobody from the first film is involved in this one. You've got Mercala played by somebody else. <laughs> the Man in Black is played by somebody else. The Man in the Director's Chair is different. Bernard Robinson died before he could work on this film. I don't know what else to say. I mean, you got Tudor Gates. I mean, he's got some continuity. And at one point, the original screenplay for Lust for a Vampire did have some solid callbacks to the first film. 
you know, with the whole cat thing, you know, the cat being Mercado's avatar or whatever, that was supposed to be in the movie. There's supposed to be some more references. But by the time they got to production, a lot of these things have been dropped. This really could be its own standalone film. Its connection to the previous Karnstein film is tenuous at best, in my opinion. And then the third film is also the same. It really didn't have to be a series. Well, this is a weird one. It's not supposed to be necessarily a chronological series, at least in my, the way it plays out in my mind. It's because it's all circles around the actual Karnstein family. So it, they could be you know hundreds of years apart, which would explain the differences and everything. I don't agree because they make a strong point in this film that the vampires raise every, was it 40 years? Yeah. And they, they keep bringing that back several times. So I'm, I was thinking they were trying to really establish this as 40 years since the events of the first film. Well, yeah, I think they try to establish that here. But I think by the time they got to uh, Twins of Evil, they've kind of pushed that aside because I think there was more time that passed in between there. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Really, if you look at the dates, because there are some very specific dates mentioned here in Lust for Vampire. And I guess there were in The Vampire Lovers as well. Again, Vampire Lovers was the first one, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Still operating on a coffee deficit this morning. Uh, so there are some definite times and years mentioned in this film versus the previous film, and they don't quite add up either. So I, I see that they should be part of a franchise, like a, an ongoing series, but when you really start to look at it, I feel like it kind of breaks down. Besides, during that 40-year period, why didn't they just burn down the castle? Because <laughs> fire doesn't destroy vampires. They make that point in this film as well. Yep. Well, but they should have done something. They should have been just waiting around like, oh, well, you know, every 40 years it happens. So we're just not going to do anything for a generation. And then, whoops, I guess we should have <laughs> done something about those crazy Karnsteins. All I know is they've got a really special kind of fire because it burns stone. I was impressed. Yeah. No. Well, and plus, in those, 40, in those 40 years that passed, they didn't have a horny writer to help them out. <laughs> yeah. Was he really a lot of help? <laughs> oh, Richard Lestrange, played by Michael Johnson. I've got some information about, well, something that happened with him on set as well that we'll talk about when we get to it, um, get to the love scene. Yeah, um, he's, uh, he likes the ladies. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and it wasn't creepy at all. Well, he wasn't the only one that likes the ladies, so did Mercala. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, but did, is it just me or was Richard Lestrange the bigger monster than any of the vampires or Karnsteins in this movie? He's the one that was like actively not necessarily helping. If this was modern day, that guy would be going door to door, introducing himself and letting people know his name is on the list. <laughs> <laughs> How old were the girls in the uh, finishing school? I hope old enough. <laughs> I mean, for our sake, because we saw a lot of them with other tops on. But, I mean, clearly the characters are supposed to be, what, 18, early 20s? Yeah, I honestly don't know what a finishing school translates as to our modern times, just because it's, you know, not something I'm familiar with. So I don't know if finishing school comes after their regular tutoring and whatnot before they are declared adults and set upon the world or whatnot. I'm not sure how that works. Oh, what I learned about finishing school is the school where you wear no underwear. Yes. It's the school where you wear no underwear, put on a dress, and dance around the front yard for your exercise. <laughs> it's Based cardio. on a Greek dance, yeah. 
And, and, and what's the problem with that? I, I liked that. <laughs> <laughs> so did Giles Barton. Yeah, he is. Yeah, played by Ralph Bates, who I actually kind of like as an actor. He's uh, been in a lot of Hammer films. He was in the horror Frankenstein, also directed by Jimmy Sangster the year before this. And he was also in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I like him a lot. I think he's a good actor. I don't know if he was well-suited for the role of the pervy <laughs> history and art teacher who watched the girls dance in the front yard. He wasn't so much pervy, though. Uh, no, he would have been right there with Lestrange going door-to-door. Yeah. His draw to be there was because of the vampire stuff. And, it, I mean, sure, you can't help but being pervy and being the male, the lone male teacher in that school. But, you know, he had a different uh, mission in life, I think, rather than <laughs> sleeping with all of them. But all the girls always complained about how they were. he was always leering at them, always watching them. Yeah, but he's kind of got a Crispin Glover thing going, too. So, you know, he's going to be creepy. Oh, God, he did in this, didn't he? Yeah. Oh. Ew. <laughs> so that was a part originally intended for Peter Cushing. Tudor Gates uh, specifically wrote that role for Cushing. But as Scott said in the intro, Cushing had to bow out. His wife was sick. And priorities, man. Yeah. I'll be honest here. For I mean, I'm just going to go out and say it. I enjoyed this movie. Not for the right reasons. Um, and that's not to sound <laughs> creepy either. I'll get into it later. But um, Do you need a moment? I don't see Peter Cushing actually fitting in well with this movie because of the level of camp and everything that was going on. Now, see, I think he would have been perfect in that role because he wouldn't have – I think they would have taken out the lines about him staring at the girls and everything. And he would have probably been more of a scientific teacher for the school who was there – investigating the vampires, you know, sort of as his Van Helsing type character because he's hunting them down. Well, I could see that, but for me, that takes away what I enjoyed from this movie because they're going to take it in a more serious route. I do wonder if there were a lot of changes made to the screenplay once they realized Cushing wasn't available and Bates took over. Yeah. It sounds like they kind of just went nuts with it. (laughs) Yeah, you see where Scott's coming from, though, too. Well, who else is in the film? We've got a bunch of women, (laughs) a bunch (laughs) of young girls. I think probably the only other person of any note in in terms of the students is Janet Playfair by Susanna Lee. And then you've got Miss Simpson, played by Helen Christie. She's pretty much the person in charge with Giles of the school. Yeah, and then you have Harvey Hall showed up again, who is in all three of the movies. Oh, was he in the other one? Yeah. As as the same character? No. He played different characters in each movie, but in Vampire Lovers, he was one of the house uh, butlers, I believe. And then um, I don't remember the role he played in Twins of Evil, but I do remember he was in there, too. Gotcha. We haven't haven't mentioned the best actor in this film yet. Mike Raven's Widow's Peak. (laughs) No. Even though he was great, but no, he wasn't the best actor in this film. Oh, no. Christopher Lee. <laughs> His eyes are in this film, and that's yeah. it. Do we want to talk about that? <laughs> Do we want to talk about that already? Okay. So, Mike Raven is the Mountain Black, the Count Karnstein, kind of the patriarch of the family. And I, and I do like that we get a little bit more with the family structure here. Not a lot. But there's more with the family structure here than there was in the previous film. Mike Raven, man, I could have 
I would have impaled myself on his damn Widow's Peak, man. That Widow's Peak was amazing. Uh, Mike Raven plays this Lord Vampire type. He's in charge. He's keeping an eye on Carmilla and everybody else. Moonlighting as a doctor. <laughs> Moonlighting as a doctor. It's a hot attack. And he was angry with this movie because he is a radio DJ. He was a well-known radio DJ. Awesome voice. Completely redubbed for this film. It's a hot attack. Yeah, they did a great job, right? <laughs> yeah, he was unhappy. And not only was his voice redubbed for the close-ups of his eyes in the opening sequence, which I actually kind of dug. We insert Christopher Lee's eyes from Taste the Blood of Dracula. It would have been okay if they would have taken his eyes and colored them red. Because you see scenes with him staring over, you know, what's going on, and his his eyes are white. And then they focus in, you see Christopher Lee's eyes, and they're beet red. And then you go back, and his eyes are white again. <laughs> yeah, because they really focus in on his white eyes, too, after they showed the close-up and everything. You're like, huh. That power, yeah, like, uh, you know, that magic power just kind of comes and goes pretty quick, I guess. Ooh, it's magic. <laughs> yeah. No, I am... Um... I knew that was there going into it. I had read it, and I didn't realize it was going to be so blatant. I mean, it's so obvious that it's not his eyes. From the color that Scott's talking about to the big bushy eyebrows of Christopher Lee versus Mike Raven's very clean, lined face. And like Casey said, we see his face again later. We do some close-ups of Mike Raven's face later, and it's clearly not Christopher Lee. It sticks out like a sore thumb. It's it's yeah. really, really... I mean, it would have been better if they would have just cut the close-up of the eyes out of the film. He does look like a poor man's Christopher Lee, though. In some shots, yeah. Yeah. But then this whole thing feels like a poor man's Dracula film. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, you could see where they were... They are like, hey, that guy looks pretty much like Christopher Lee. Let's throw him in there. We just won't focus on him long. <laughs> Slap that widow's peak on there, and then we'll be good to go. And that widow's peak, man. And then, of course... Jut Stensgaard is Mirkala slash Carmilla. So why is it Jut and not Ingrid Pitt? She didn't like the script. I've read that in some sources. Some other sources say that she was already tied up in Hammer's Countess Dracula, which was also happening around the same time, which I actually really want to see. I've got it here. I just haven't sat down to watch it yet, which actually brings I, up. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say I've seen Countess Dracula. Is it good? It's all right. It's better nice. than this. Uh, probably. How's the soundtrack? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about the soundtrack of this film. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, we will. All right. So this movie, like I said, they sit down, they start talking about it two to three days, you know, about two days after they started shooting The Vampire Lovers. They get some money people involved. Pre-production occurred through May and June, including budgeting and casting. As Scott said in the intro, Terrence Fisher was supposed to do the direction, but he broke his leg and came up with a really good excuse to get out of it. Jimmy Sankster comes back to him. He had actually been in L.A. for a while doing some work and ended up coming back to work on this because he had connections to Hammer still, of course, did the horror Frankenstein, which is the one odd Frankenstein movie in the whole Hammer Frankenstein franchise in that it's almost kind of a reboot. Some people call it a dark comedy. Ralph Bates played Dr. Frankenstein in that, so... Thanks, I'm, I'm sure it's probably responsible for bringing Ralph Bates in, or at least they were happy to be working together. Uh, pre-production was plagued by problems. Like we talked about, Peter Cushing was supposed to be Giles Barton, but ended up not being able to do the film, which Hammer kind of struggled with. The idea was is they wanted to highlight some of the new talent, but also give 
props to the old guard by bringing in Peter Cushing and showing people, hey, you know, we've got the best of the old and the new hammer here. That just didn't work. You mentioned Harvey Hall. Also, Pippa Steele, we didn't mention her. She's also in uh, the previous film. She is the American girl who dies later or disappears later, who's got an awesome dad that turns to play during the film. Oh. And I mentioned Bernard Robinson. He was supposed to do the production design, but <laughs> he came up with a better excuse than uh, Terrence Fisher. He died. <laughs> Most of the research that I have about this movie is about the soundtrack. <laughs> And when we get to that point in the film, when Scott's breaking down the plot, because I'm sure he's dying to do so, we'll talk about the soundtrack and we'll talk about that song. <laughs> oh, and here's the quote that I wanted to read to you guys. So before we started recording, I asked Scott if there were any James Bond connections that he found because that's his thing. And I told him that in an old issue of Little Shop of Horrors magazine. This is issue number four from May 1984. And then there's Hugh Stensgard. Perhaps she's been unfairly compared to Ingrid Pitt. That's like comparing Roger Moore's James Bond to Sean Connery's. They're both good, but in different ways. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we get into the plot, I do need to make my James Bond connection tenuous as it is. So cue the music, please. All right. The innkeeper in Lust for a Vampire that we see at the very beginning of the film played by Michael Brennan. Michael Brennan is also in Thunderball as Yanni, one of the uh, Spectre goons. Nice. That's a deep cut there. I told you it was tenuous, but it does exist. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, if there's a James Bond connection in this movie, you know it's got to be good, right? The connection is good, yes. <laughs> All right, listeners, hang on. Um, we'll try to be fair, but I think it's coming across pretty obviously that uh, we had some problems with the film. No, it's, all Casey's it's coming fault. across pretty obviously that Scott and Derek had problems with this film. <laughs> oh, Casey. I don't want to be lumped in there as giving this an unfair shake. Shake, <laughs> pun intended, with using shake. <laughs> wow. uh, but before we get into this, one thing I want to do at some point is I think we should, now that we have seen all, all of the Karnstein films, we should each rank them in which ones that we think is, is better or best. You want to do that now or at the end? at the end. Okay. You cool with that, Casey? Yep. All right. So, so you guys got that to look forward to. So are we ready, ready to get into the plot? Let's do oh, it. Uh, I was born ready <laughs> to get into Yut Stensgard's lust for a vampire. You were born ready to get into Yut Stensgard? The rumor is she lives here in Oregon. Nice. Oh, should we mention that? She disappeared. She disappeared for a long time. After this film, this might have been one of the last films, if not the last film she did, she disappeared. Now, when she was working on this film, she was married to Tony Curtis, not that Tony Curtis, but the Tony Curtis who was the art director for Amicus, which was another British studio that popped up after the success of Hammer. Uh, She divorced him, married another guy, and the word was last that She's in Oregon somewhere. She was doing radio work, either selling radio air on a radio station, might have been an on-air personality. I don't really know. But for a long time, she disappeared. And it was through the efforts of a dedicated Danish horror fan, I believe he was Danish, tracked her down and talked to her about her involvement in the film. She got very, um, I don't want to say dismissive, but she was a born-again Christian at that point, and almost all of her films involved her taking her top off there's a lot of sex uh you know lust for a vampire obviously has the the lesbian connection as well and 
there was just this very kind of, I don't want anything to do with my old life kind of thing. Now, she's since turned up at some horror conventions. From what I understand, she's really friendly. I don't know if she still resides here in Oregon, but if I ever see her, guys, I'll let you know. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I'll do that for you, Casey, since it's your birthday pick. <laughs> I won't recognize what she sounds like because I'm most <laughs> she was dubbed as well. So Anyway, let's find out why she went into hiding, Scott. Oh, I'm sorry. You said Tony Curtis, and I started thinking about Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Not that Tony Curtis. <laughs> but that Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> oh, that Jamie Lee. <laughs> oh. You, do you need a moment? <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> wow. I'm thinking of trading places. <laughs> With Tony Curtis? <laughs> yeah. No, the film trading place. Oh. Uh, where was I? Oh, yes. Uh, getting ready to start the plot. <laughs> we weren't anywhere. We, I'd say we got completely derailed, but we barely even started. All We're right. on the wrong damn train. <laughs> <laughs> the movie opens with... Uh, we're in a small village, and uh, we see a young girl that's uh, working, I guess, in the pub there carrying um, a basket as she's uh, as leaving, and this... Uh, one of the uh, town's people, town's guys, is basically saying, can I see you later? And she's like, oh, I get off later. And she then scampers off, uh, obviously, to deliver the basket somewhere. So or an early delivery girl. We then see a uh, that she walks by a caped figure who gets into a coach. And the, uh, the coach then um, starts to follow her and pulls up alongside her and opens the door. And the girl obviously hadn't seen any of the hitchhiking uh, educational films later on because uh, she gets into the cab into the coach excuse me (laughs) and uh, the hooded figure must have revealed herself because we get an extreme close-up of the uh, young girl screaming as that happens the coachman cracks his whip and the coach then thunders off through the woods and that we get the the opening credits which are very 70s looking Oh, yeah. But uh, we go through the uh, the woods, and we end up at uh, Karnstein Castle. And uh, she is placed on an altar. She's placed on an altar in such a way that her head is uh, like off the end of a table. So you get an incredibly great view of her neck. And uh, obviously see that there <laughs> is... Well, that's one thing you can get a good look at. Can I interject here? Because sure. this movie is filled with a lot of breasts. And yeah, it is. I feel, <laughs> I feel like Cameron was really trying to push the – well, they, they got away with a lot more than I think they had in the past with this film. And it got to the point to where Sangster was actually positioning the camera to highlight the cleavage even when there wasn't a sexual scene going on, like with that shot you're talking about, with her being laid down on her back, facing the camera, her head tilted back so that as you're looking at her, you can't help but look right up her dress or right down her dress or whatever. Oh, Jimmy. But uh, the one thing that I thought was interesting is you also get a good view of her neck. So she hasn't been bitten. You know, I was thinking that was the first, that was what happened to her when she screamed. But she's placed there on the altar, and the the coachman uh, who's in there, he actually opens up a coffin to reveal a badly decomposed corpse. Uh, We have Count Karnstein in his widow's peak, who plays, (laughs) who who shows up, and um, he's got a rather large dagger. And he, 
he gives it to the um, <laughs> to the woman who was um, hooded earlier, and she pulls back the hood, and she uh, goes over and slits the girl's throat. I like this shot. And you don't actually see that because the camera pans down to a goblet that starts to catch the blood. I love that. I absolutely loved it. At this time, uh, the Count picks up the goblet and he starts this incantation to the devil to bring back this woman who's in the coffin. Oh, Lord of Darkness, Prince of Hell... Hear this, thy servant's plea. Send from thy black realm the power that we may do thy will on earth. Recreate this dust of centuries that in thy service the dead may join with the undead. He then um, pours the blood all over the face of the corpse. Then a shroud is pulled over the entire body. And then uh, there's this kind of weird fog, some little bit of a light show. Mike Raven was a DJ. <laughs> you see the camera uh, follow down, and you can see the skeleton through the shroud, and you can actually see what looks like veins start to appear and, and blood moving through it and all of a sudden the whole body pops up and uh, we've got Ute there she's all covered in blood but she's now been revived but you don't see her face yet I have to say this was one of my favorite scenes of the movie I love I absolutely love a well done late 70s, you know, 70s or 80s vampire resurrection scene Something about them, when they're done well, I just dig the hell out of them. And I thought this one was pretty good. It does have some 70s uh, schmarminess to it. (laughs) (laughs) But I did like that when they cut the girl's throat, you didn't see the throat slash. The camera actually moved down to follow the trail of the flowing blood into the goblet. I thought that was nice and kind of restrained for a movie like this. I liked the pouring of the blood all over the corpse's face. I liked the way the corpse looked. I liked that they brought the... Sh- I mean, there are some things that just don't make any sense. Like, why do they have to cover it with a shroud? It, it didn't make any sense. It matter. Why, why is it sparking the lights? I don't get it. But I did like it. I like that they obscured everybody but the Count's uh, faces, too. Yeah. Because it was a loose attempt to where later when they show up, you don't know. You know, They're hoping you don't exactly know. It adds mystery. Like, which one is the person that rose from the casket and all that stuff, even though they make it pretty obvious still, but... Well, and I think if you watch the trailer, you kind of or know, seen the but, posters. Yeah, yeah. Well, we then uh, head back uh, to the tavern in town, and we meet uh, Richard Lestrange, played by uh, Michael Johnson, as he's uh, flirting <laughs> with a um, a bar winch. And then uh, my man Michael Brennan, the innkeeper, shows up to uh, basically give him a stern warning about talking to strangers in this town. A word with you, if you please, Mister Lestrange. Well, yes, yeah, certainly. Sit down. Have a glass of wine. No, thank you, sir. I do not wish to appear inhospitable, sir. There is no harm in normal times to have a joke with a serving girl, a laugh or two. 
These are not normal times. You'll not find any young girl in this village talking to a stranger. This is your first night under this roof. It'll probably be the last. Do you know what year this is, sir? 1830, as I recall. Yes, it is 40 years to the day since they were last seen. And before that, 40 years again. Oh, really? Who? The Kernsteins. I don't think I know them. That's their castle up on the hill. Oh, yes, of course. I thought they were all dead. We call them the undead, sir. They're vampires. <laughs> that seemed weird. It seemed oddly motivated. I, I thought it was, when he, when he started, it was like, you know, you know, sir, that's my daughter, and I don't appreciate you talking to her that way. No, it's just, uh, you know, 40 years ago, some shit went down, and it's about to go down again, and you yeah. ain't getting any. Well, they did the same thing what? in uh, the Brides of Dracula, didn't they? Yeah, but that was out of more of a concern for the young girl who's traveling alone, that sort of thing. Yeah. This was just a, uh, I don't know where the motivation behind this came from. They clearly didn't like the guy, and I understand why. Well, it's they didn't creepy. want him to be killed either. Well, that and there's a stranger that shows up that's flirting with all the waitresses at the at the little restaurant, the thing there, at the little diner. So they're probably saying, hey, we got girls disappearing. You may want to watch yourself unless you want to be a suspect. Or maybe they thought he was a vampire. <laughs> they've got girls that have just been, that have been disappearing, and they know that they've got this problem. They say, hey, we don't know you. How do we know you're not the person that's making these girls disappear? Yeah. That's the way I took it. Oh, okay. Well, the innkeeper then, he tells them that, that it's – 1830, and that uh, every 40 years to the day is when the Karnsteins uh, reappear, and that uh, they're vampires, and they're from this castle just outside of town, and that uh, we've already got uh, one girl missing. Uh, nobody here is going to talk to strangers because everybody's afraid that the Karnsteins are are starting to reappear. Uh, so they, he's basically giving a warning to Lestrange to to watch himself. Lestrange doesn't take any of it seriously, and um, so what is he? What's he going to do? Because he is a horror writer, uh, he's decides that he's going to go up and check out the castle after he's just been warned that uh, there's vampires starting to show up there. Was it a little too on the nose and obvious that an author by the name of Lestrange wrote horror stories? <laughs> I was figuring it was a pen name. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so he he heads up to uh, Karnstein Castle. He starts to to wander wander around in there, and he finds some blood from the sacrifice earlier. And then he sees a hooded girl, and he starts to back away. And then more girls in hoods start to show up and start to surround him. And he starts to to panic a little bit because he's guessing, thinking that the innkeeper was you know giving him some good information. He shouldn't have come up here. But then uh, Giles Barton basically tells the girls to back off, and they're just there as uh, you know, in, looking at the castle because uh, Giles is a genealogist and working at a finishing school nearby, and so the girls are just students there, and uh, they're just kind of um, looking around the castle while Lestrange is teaching them about uh, the Karnsteins. Now the the hooded girls they run out of the castle and start heading back towards the school while Giles is telling Lestrange a little bit about the school and he takes him down to, to meet the the rest of the people at the school. And that's uh, when we get to meet the gym teacher, uh, Janet Playfair, and uh, also Miss Simpson, who is the uh, the principal. 
Now, uh, Janet Playfair has all the girls out. Uh, I guess it's gym class uh, because she's teaching them to dance, and they're all wearing these very flowing, silky, almost see-through type robes. Out, out, yeah, they were <laughs> out in the sunshine, and they're doing this Greek-inspired, Greco-Roman type dance. Now, this is a new idea in physical exercise based on Greco-Roman dancing. Is it? <laughs> Lestrange and uh, Barton are kind of, with lust in their eyes, kind of staring at this spectacle going on, which I'm also sure that the the cast of 1951 Downplace was also having that look in their eyes when they were watching this scene. <laughs> I honestly, I honestly felt Giles, as far as the lecherous side, I I honestly felt he was kind of subdued throughout this movie because I I felt it came across stronger that he is obsessed with the. Uh, vampire thing but from this point on when Lestrange walks up and he sees these girls all posed on the front step of the stuff I got the impression for him it was just flat out oh oh yeah here we go (laughs) (laughs) yeah baby oh boy (laughs) but uh, so in this um Lestrange meets Miss Simpson, who is the uh, the principal, and uh, Miss Simpson, obviously, there's something about Lestrange that she doesn't like and uh, doesn't like his writing. <laughs> she kind of warms up to him a little bit after uh, she realizes that he is the son of a lord. He then asks if he could stay and, and teach literature to the girls. <laughs> With yes, air quotes. Literature. <laughs> literature. Well, Miss Simpson said they've already got a uh, a teacher coming in to teach English literature, but he's welcome to stay for a little bit, just as uh, she's informed that a coach is arriving, and uh, it's the Countess Hertzen. I think that's how you pronounce it. And she's arriving with her niece, uh, Mercala, and uh, Lestrange is, uh, uh, they offer, says, would you like to meet the Countess? And so they um, all go to meet, and um, Lestrange first sees uh, Marcala, and I swear there was, like, violin music playing when they first laid eyes on each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is, this is in the meantime, you know, with Lestrange in the background going, whoo, more? <laughs> Ooh, yeah, let's go. Let's do this. I mean, he's just, he's just seen all the girls <laughs> doing their Greco-Roman dancing, and then he sees... <laughs> <laughs> then he sees uh, Mercala, which trumps them all in looks department, and he's just over the top. <laughs> uh-huh. So Lestrange is obviously taken back by Mercala, but uh, unfortunately he doesn't have any reason to stay. So the next thing we see is uh, it's a night in the dorm, which, you know, dear Penthouse, I never thought something like this would happen to me. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, lots of pretty naked um, class class girls, you know, kind of running around the uh, the dorm area. There, uh, we see uh, Marcala with her uh, roommate uh, Susan Pelly, played by Pippa Steele. Susan is giving uh, her a massage. Because uh, Mercala has a, a sore neck. Well, it's from all, all the, the dancing. dancing. Yes. Yeah. And uh, she's wearing, now, you know, Mercala's now wearing the same type of outfit that most of the girls were wearing in the dance class, which is just these kind of silk things that go up over her shoulders. 
So uh, Susan's behind her rubbing the shoulders and pushing out, and all of a sudden both straps fall down the shoulders and reveal in all their glory. (laughs) Boom, boom. (laughs) Wow. All right. So, you know, this is probably a good point to bring up this quote about you. This is from the essay, Why the 1970s Bite by Stephen Vertlieb. Yut Stensgaard was selected for her twin abilities rather than for her sensibilities. So this scene, I think, probably illustrates that the best. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Susan's giving her a massage, and then she suggests that they uh, sneak out for a midnight swim, thinking that will, will better help her shoulders. Yeah, I'm sure that's what she was thinking. <laughs> and she's reaching in. Uh, Susan's about ready to kiss Marcella's neck when... Janet Playfair comes in the room and they immediately stop what they're doing. And um, Janet's telling them, you know, lights out, everybody in bed in five minutes. So uh, we then we then sure. go back to the uh, <laughs> to the bar in town and Lestrange is there and he's telling all the locals about his vampire encounter up at the castle. And he's basically got the, the whole town eating out of the palm of his hand because he's telling the story. And the, <laughs> the, the, the bar is just rocking with laughter and everything. You know what they got up there? Girls! Uh, as this is going on, um, the uh, the bar's puppy needs to go out. Which, of course, what bar doesn't have a dog? And the, so one of the serving uh, wenches let her out. The serving wench, this scene just cracked me up. Because the serving wench looks, turns to the camera. And, you know, if you're ever going to design a first-person vampire video game... You know, watch this scene because I. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> because you are the vampire. <laughs> oh wait, because that was because the, they showed this scene the this shot a couple times, but that was the one where she got it all right in the camera lens and was like licking her lips yep. and stuff, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a good scene. If they only they had it mic'd better, you know, you just hear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then, she, then she screams, and, and you know everybody goes running out there, and uh, she's dead with uh, two puncture wounds in her neck. So then we go back uh, to the to the lake, and uh, we find um, uh, Susan and Marcala have uh, both dropped their ro- robes and uh, dove into the water. Then they kiss, and unfortunately, the scene ends. <laughs> <laughs> So then, uh, then we get to meet. Uh, excuse me. We get uh, Lestrange gets to meet uh, Arthur Biggs, who uh, Jonathan <laughs> Cecil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he looked like a Cecil. <laughs> and oh uh, yeah, he meets him at the bar, and uh, he he wants to avoid him at first. He tells the bartender, "Don't seat me with him." But of course, uh, Arthur Biggs comes over and starts talking to him. Because he recognizes Lestrange, and he actually has read everything Lestrange has ever done. And uh, you could see kind of a, a thought uh, starting to percolate in Lestrange's mind when he finds out that um, uh, Arthur is uh, going up to that finishing school to be their English teacher. So he concocts this whole plan about how the two of them are going to write a book together. Because um, Arthur wants Lestrange to read some of his work. And uh, so Lestrange sends Arthur Biggs off to, was it Sicily or Vienna? Vienna. Was it Venice? It might have been Venice. It was, yes, somewhere, was somewhere else, else. To I, I guess to start writing. 
to do research for yes. their collaboration. Yeah. Drop everything you're doing and, and go. <laughs> and Scott, you've been published, and Casey and I are, are writers as well. And I recognize the whole, oh, you're a writer? Well, I'm a writer too, and here's all my work, and I love what you do, and that sort of thing. I thought Lestrange kind of turned the tables on him pretty effectively without really hurting his feelings too badly. So I, I guess I kind of like that. I'm stretching. I'm reaching. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so uh, we then um, flash back to the finishing school where Lestrange is telling uh, Miss Simpson that unfortunately Arthur Biggs has broken his leg in three places and the only doctor that can help him is in Venice, Vienna, wherever he was sent to go. And he will not... V-Town. <laughs> and he will not... <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> he, he will not be able to um, to teach the class but luckily, I'm still available, and I can teach English literature for you. So, and he's actually given a place, hires, yeah, hires him. him, and gives him a place to stay there on the on the property. Jackpot! <laughs> he's in. <laughs> Good grief! Well, not he's excited about living on campus, but when he finds out who his roommate's going to be, <laughs> yeah, you will be sharing with Mister Giles. Better and better. Are you sure there's not something in the main building I could sleep in? <laughs> I'll stay in your room. Just don't put me in there with Giles. <laughs> yep, he's uh, he's given um, there's a share a place with with Giles. Well, we spent some time kind of learning what's ha- you know we we spent some time on campus. I mean, we see him well, teaching 19th century literature, not 18th century, which is what Carmilla yes, or Mercalla's. But we also at. have that night that. Uh, um, Barton is doing all this research in the castle, and Lestrange jokes that you know Barton he just wants to be a vampire. You know, Lestrange tells Barton about the the tavern girl and what happened in town. It's not all superstition about the vampires and everything, but uh, Barton's like he's like I'm, I got to get out of here. I got to take a walk and, le- and leaves. And uh, then we go back to the lake, and uh, we see another first person vampire attack on Susan. So we don't know who who the assailant is, but then um, <laughs> we then um, see that uh, that Barton finds the body or has the body, picks him, picks her up, and uh, throws her uh, into an old well. So you kind of think that maybe you know, Barton might have had something to do with um, Susan's death because you, you you don't see Marcala anymore. So the next day, you know, Marcala is in the Miss Simpson's office and wanting, and she's being interrogated of where Susan is because she's her roommate. But Marcala says, "I don't know where she is. I went to bed, and when I got up, she still wasn't there." Jenny Playfair is also there. She's saying, "You know, we ought to call the police." Miss Simpson, a girl has disappeared. You can't really believe it's a joke. Of course I don't. But there's no need to alarm the whole school. What are you going to do? Well, we must wait a while. She may come back. I've had more experience than you of this kind of thing. Some of these girls have wild natures. They pick up with some man. Man? What man? We're miles from the village. The local people have never even been near here. Susan's only just joined the school. We don't know that she hasn't been followed. That's ridiculous. Susan is not that kind of girl at all. And in any case, if she had been abducted... As you seem to be suggesting, we should still inform the police. The police? Certainly not. We must. I will not be told what to do in my own school. Girl, you crazy. <laughs> then uh, we we flash back to Barton's uh, class, and he's got the girls with him, and uh, they're back out at the uh, Karnstein Castle. 
and uh, they actually go up to Carmilla's grave. And uh, then he he starts to, to talk about how families of that time would name their kids anagrams of their parents' names. So he was... Has anybody I, heard that before? I mean, that seemed kind of... I have of, never heard that before. <laughs> no. It seemed to kind of come out of nowhere. That's the problem you take away yeah. from this movie. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the issue that I had. That was just one issue too many. Pushed it over the edge. Totally unbelievable. So they're, you know, like I said, they're at Carmilla's grave, and the they start throwing out names that are anagrams of Carmilla, and finally one of the other students says, Mia Carla. <laughs> And, of course, uh, Mercala then has this evil look on her face. Barton is like, um, well, maybe. And then, you know, he's like, come on, girls. We got to we got to go on. And uh, then out of, after all the girls leaves, um, Barton then whispers to Mercala to meet him there that night. He says, I got something very important I've discovered and I need to talk to you. <laughs> I got something to show you. <laughs> They meet later that night, and uh, Barton basically tells uh, Marcala that he knows who she is because he's also got a portrait of Carmilla in one of his books. And uh, to prove it, he holds out a crucifix, which Marcella uh, shrieks away from. And then uh, he reverses it, turns it upside down, and it tells Marcala, I know how the black magic works, and... What I want to be is I want to serve the devil. I want to be your servant. I want to be with you. Then uh, she gets this kind of a wicked smile on her face, and she goes in to kiss him. It goes into the neck, and, of course, she doesn't kiss him. Looks like she's starting to, to bite him, but not like is what you would think. It was more kind of look like kind of a nibble. So it's not like... <laughs> Yeah, it was was really odd. It wasn't a full-on vampire attack. So so I'm thinking to myself, oh, maybe it's, you know, a smaller little nibble and then she can take control of him and, you know, he could be like a lackey or something. But no, you know, she walks away and then Barton is crawling after her, yelling her name, come back and everything. And then he kind of falls down under a fallen tree. Mirkola! Ricola! Oh, <laughs> but uh, his body is found the next day by uh, some of the the girls in the in school when they're out, kind of running around in their flowing dresses. I'm not sure what class that was. <laughs> it was math <laughs> class. <laughs> okay, but uh, luckily for the school, uh, the the countess is happens to be in the neighborhood and has her personal physician, and so he goes to take a look at uh, Barton. And um, when asked about uh, the cause of the death, a heart attack, Janet doesn't agree with the whole thing. And she goes to Lestrange saying, you know, something's weird's going on here. The police need to come in and check this out. Lestrange is, you know, he he doesn't want the police around there. I don't think either because he doesn't want the status quo messed up around. You know, I don't want any more men traipsing around here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But I don't want any yeah. competition. But he decides that he's going to look through uh, all of Barton's research material that happens to still be in their shared room. So he's reading through all of this stuff and basically he comes up with the the same conclusion that Barton did. Marcala is a vampire. 
Then we get to her his class, which he's teaching the 19th century literature. And uh, he basically berates Markella at one point that she knows everything about 18th century literature, but nothing about 19th century literature. While doing this, he also whispers that he needs to talk to her right away because he's found out uh, something and uh, says, meet me at the castle. So later they go to the castle and um, he confronts her with all the information. And Markala, I mean, Markala then admits that uh, she is a Karnstein and that the family changed their name because of the family history. Now kiss me. Lestrange then says, Casey, Casey, don't ever <laughs> say that again. <laughs> Then Lestrange then declares his love, and she then, don't come close, you know, what if I am a vampire, then you'll die. And so I'm like, oh, that's a new rule about vampires. You make love to a vampire, you'll die. I didn't know that one. They do end up making love. Uh, would you say it's love, or would you say it's strange love? <laughs> <laughs> or tainted. Or puberty love. Uh yeah, well, we would have taken any of those. I'd, I would have taken puberty love over strange love here. That's, and that's saying a that, lot right out there. Out of context, would sound fun. <laughs> yeah. All right. Can we talk about, should we talk about the song yeah, now? Yeah, because th- th- this, this, this is where it happens, yeah, right? The, the two of them make love with, the, with right. the awesome strange love playing over top. So here's the deal. The film was scored by Harry Robertson or Harry Robinson, depending on which credit you look at. One is his real name. One was the name he was using at the time. I think Robinson was the name he was using at the time, and Robertson's his real name. Don't know why he changed it. Anyway, he's the guy doing the score on this film. And Scott and I have talked off mic. I actually enjoy a lot of the music in this film once he stripped the melody from Strange Love out of it, which leaves you with about five minutes of music. But I did the, like the it. Mu- it it does fit not the fit film. the film. It's not gothic at all. The music is no, good. It no. just does not fit this film. And I dig that. However, this song comes about. Now, there are multiple reports about why this song happened. As somebody who collects soundtracks, I understand that, especially for a lot of the 70s and 80s and maybe even early 90s, the only tie-in item, the only bit of merchandise that you can sell to an adult from a film is the soundtrack album. Now, these days, it's different. It's not like you can make a lunchbox and an action figure or whatever and expect to sell it to a 20, 30, 40-something-year-old person. The only thing you can sell to them is the soundtrack album. So they want to have a song that they can package and sell. Maybe you some radio airplay, that sort of thing. So they come up with this song, Strange Love, sung by Tracy, <laughs> whoever that is, to put into the film. Now, Robertson flat out denies ever having anything to do with this song. He said that he produced it out of protest. He included it out of protest. Didn't want anything to do with it. Some reports say that Jimmy Sangster said, I'll only put it in the movie if it doesn't cost us any more money. If it costs us more money, we're not using it. Other <laughs> people said that's not Jimmy Sangster's style at all, and he just would have done what he was told. Now, I had something, an interview with one of the producers, Harry Fine, or it might have been Michael Style. Let's see here. Well, here's a quote from Harry Robertson. There's going to be a song in this picture over my dead body. Uh, let's see. There's an awful storm on that. Harry Fine had EMI interested in publishing a song from the picture. So Harry asked me if I could turn the theme into a pop song. So I wrote this love theme and then he gave it to the music supervisor. Yeah, if you if you guys haven't heard this song, think of Oh, we'll, well put it in th- the end credits. Think how yeah. that the soft rock hits of the early 70s, you know, your bread, that type of song and then 
it's worse than that by about a tenfold. And you're getting close to what Strange Love is. <laughs> <laughs> the approach that they were taking, at least Harry Fine at one point said, hey, they put a song in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and that was all right. That was a good song, though. This is no raindrops no. falling on my head. So Robertson wanted nothing to do with it, supposedly. Sangster says he didn't want anything to do with it. Harry Fine then says later that the story that Robertson tells is largely apocryphal. According to Fine, Robertson was told by him to include a pop song in the film, and Robertson found a young singer named Tracy to warble it. Although the composer recalled that a guy at EMI wrote the lyrics, the film's credits read that the lyrics were actually written by Frank Godwin, who is Robinson's longtime friend and associate. Fine recalls that it was, in fact, Robinson who contracted the lyricist. Now, Fine wrote in his diary that the music was recorded in September and the song Strange Love was recorded five days after the score. And he has absolutely no recollection of anybody objecting to the song and quickly adds that it wouldn't have made any difference if they had. Uh, he also says that Sangster would have never said the whole, it cost me money, the song's out. He says that's ludicrous. That's not his style. Fine had no problem with the song whatsoever. And Sangster was actually involved in a film called Fright that had another song on the soundtrack as well. So nobody seems to want to take credit for this song up to and including the guy who played Richard Lestrange, Michael Johnson, who told it was either Little Shop of Horrors or another one of these sources that I have here that when that song came on, he was laughing so hard in the theater that he had to be escorted out of the cinema. <laughs> the song's a sticking point for a lot of folks. Unfortunately, it gets stuck in your head, so it's a sticking point <laughs> for us, too. Well, one of the things about this, this scene that... Oh, it gets yes, better, I folks! Mean, you now... You're right in the middle of the action, because we have the, the first-person camera makes a return, and I was impressed with Ute's ability to have her eyes roll in the back of her head. Because <laughs> they, they drop down right there next to Carmilla's grave and go to business. Strange love. <laughs> constantly. I mean, there's, there's a couple times where you, you see uh, Markella like go for the neck but turn away. I mean, she's, she's obviously fighting her natural instinct to feed on him. Because she's, <laughs> I think she truly is falling in love with him as well. Well, what you after spending like three days with, with Lestrange? Him? I mean, he confessed he confessed his love yes. like immediately. Yeah, dude's persistent, so you know yeah. he can only withstand that for so long. Oh, it's a different time. <laughs> oh. Losing <laughs> to Scott, he's so happy about the scene. You know, he he's talking about the rolling in the eyes of the back of the head. I I was actually more disturbed, and I don't know why. But when she's they're lying on some hay, and she's grabbing the hay behind her, and her she's grabbing it with so much. I just I don't know, man. This whole love scene was a mess. You know. Okay, I have another story about the love scene. So Michael Johnson was kind of nervous about the love scenes. Granted. Stensgard is taking her top off. There's a lot of topless women here. But he got shy. He felt he was too thin. He was friends with Ralph Bates. And to help get him in the mood, Ralph Bates starts feeding him wine. <laughs> Just basically gets him drunk so that he can do the love scene with his shirt off. I remember my dear friend Ralph Bates feeding me with red wine to get me in the mood, he said. That sounds bad. 
Yeah. You need to be put in the mood to make, film a love scene with Ute. That's bad. Yeah, not to mention the fact you've been stalking around this girl's school the whole time. <laughs> I love you. I love you. Hello, don't look I love at me. you. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. I'm too thin. <laughs> oh, boy. What a scene this is. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's let's leave this scene and we go to the next day where the the police finally show up <laughs> at the school uh thanks to Janet Playfair as uh, she's called the police and Miss Simpson is upset at first that the police are there and Inspector Heinrich who is played by Harvey Hall basically starts to uh admonish Miss Simpson because she hasn't done anything, she hasn't called the police, she hasn't even contacted uh, the missing girl's father who is um, Raymond Pelly, played by David Healy. <laughs> I love David Healy in this, man. I can't wait for him to yeah. show up. He's so, awesome. Uh, Inspector Heinrich forces uh, Miss Simpson to write a letter. Has the family been told? Then you will write a letter to them immediately. I said immediately, Miss Simpson. Then he immediately goes off to start his investigation. And he even uh, goes right to the well, which I don't know what made him go right to the well, but that's where he goes first. And uh, throws a rock down there, and it falls for quite a long time, and he doesn't really hear a big splash of water, so he decides that he's going to rappel into the well, which he does, and he gets all the way to the bottom, and he finds uh, Susan's body, and he starts to climb back up the well, and he gets about three, four feet from the top, and our friend with the Widow's Peak, um, Count Karnstein's there cutting the rope, not using the Widow's Peak, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he cuts the rope, and uh, we see the inspector fall to his death right next to Susan. So this inspector, when he shows up, I think is probably my favorite part of the movie when he's having his little interview with the principal of the school. Because all this time when we're watching the movie and like when the first girl disappears and the principal's like, well, we're just going to tell everybody she's in the sanatorium when basically we're not going to do anything about it. And then, you know, somebody else disappears uh, or when Giles dies, uh, we're just going to bury him. We're not going to tell anybody. We're going to do all this stuff. So you think it's like, wow, this lady's awfully dismissive to all this stuff. And so finally this inspector shows up and he basically says, what the hell, lady? You've got people dying and turned up missing and you're not going to bother telling anybody what's going on here. It cracked me up because all the questions I had at the first half of the movie of why she wasn't doing any of this stuff, he addressed them directly and called her out on it. So I just got a big laugh out of that. Mrs. Simpson is in way over her head. Yes. While this is going on, the Countess returns and uh, he's or she's telling uh, Miss Simpson to write another letter saying that uh, her, her daughter, that his daughter has, has now died. And, um, of course, heart attack, <laughs> the count uh, <laughs> says again. And uh, then we, um, we see Lestrange um, pull Markella, Markala from the, the group uh, into a gazebo saying that... Um, He's still in love with her. He's trying to get her to admit that she's in love with him. But um, 
she can't say it, uh, or she can't say that she doesn't love him. So they end up kissing. And uh, so that night, um, Janet Playfair comes back and goes and talks to Lestrange. And Janet then informs Lestrange that she's in love with him and that she's uh, afraid that someone else is going to die because everybody that's mixed up with Marcala ends up dead and uh, she's afraid for Lestrange. The disappearance of Susan and then we have the death of Barton. They're both connected and you know, they were both connected with Markella. And uh, Markella hears all this and uh, she hypnotizes Janet to come back to her room. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what's going on. <laughs> well, what, what is well, going I know on, what I Scott? thought was going on, but um, they get back to the room <laughs> and uh, Markella gets a, a glimpse of Janet's cross necklace. Strategically placed, placed yes. Um, so she shrieks in horror and runs away from that. And now Derek's uh, favorite uh, Raymond Pelly arrives at the school and he's unhappy with what's happened with his daughter. No, Miss Simpson, it is not satisfactory at all. And now I find my daughter was missing three days before you even considered writing to me. I tried to explain. Unfortunately, I was away when that letter arrived. But then I hear from you that my daughter's been found dead. I'm not going to mince my words. You don't say passed away except when someone's had a good life and moved on. My daughter was a healthy girl. I don't believe she had a heart attack. But the doctor. The doctor? Who the hell is this doctor? Oh, he's <laughs> awesome. Are you kidding me? David Healy is this blunt kind of non-accented American who's mad about his daughter being gone and I've looked into your doctor nobody knows who he is and I brought my own doctor and I'm going to find out what's going on I'm going to bury you Mrs. Simpson he's a not very happy man <laughs> <laughs> he uh, is played by David Healy who was one of the voices of one of the door knockers in the movie Labyrinth he appeared in knockers. <laughs> yeah uh, th- this was all you know it's all related uh, he was in one of the Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense TV shows, and apparently he played Mr. Danvers in the 1984 film Supergirl, which also spends quite a bit of time taking place at a girl's school. That's what I got. I liked him in this. I did like him, this kind of for all the jokes and all the stereotypes and all that, I do enjoy the blunt kind of American character bumbling his way into a very non-American setting in this case, somewhere in, I don't even know if they really say, but somewhere in Europe, doing things his way, not really caring about the proper way and how things look. I'm going to find out what's happened to my daughter. I don't care what you say, Mrs. Simpson. And your guy, oh, no, he's he's a fraud. I don't know who this person is. I don't know that doctor. And by the way, doctors at this time just carry around death certificates wherever they go just in case they well, need them. Yeah, why not? They, you know, they just had the plague oh, okay. recently, so they probably had you know, a good s- supply of them in their medical bags. Yeah, they can't, just, the, they can't just print one out. And the finishing school just files them on hand whenever somebody dies in, on in, their campus and so then buries Simpson's them on the desk. Well, yeah, because they're hiding the bodies. <laughs> well, that's true. But if you're hiding the body, then why bother bringing in Mike Raven, the doctor, to pronounce that it was a heart attack? 
Well, well, Raymond Pelly. <sighs> I like David Pelly. Well, He's he, awesome. Raymond, uh, he was there. He was prepared because he brings his own pathologist. And he's also got oh, a, yeah. I'm assuming, a court order to exhume the body. So he, oh, yeah. He he, get he's, going, he's getting shit done. Man of action. <laughs> but uh, luckily for Miss <laughs> With some yes. awesome chops, by the <laughs> way. L-shaped. I mean, there was a nice 90-degree turn to him. But uh, right. we discover also that Miss um, Simpson, excuse me, the Countess has helped Miss Simpson out by retrieving the body and, and burying it. So it's actually in the grave when they go to exhume. They open up the casket. You see Susan in there with the two puncture wounds in the neck. A heart, heart attack. attack. Yes. So Raymond <laughs> Pelly's pathologist, Professor Hertz, he goes off to do his um, investigation the countess uh, tells him that, uh, or tells uh, Raymond he- uh, Pelly that her daughter actually died from a heart attack when she jumped from Karnstein Castle because Raymond's uh, divorce and she, that Susan wasn't from a happy home. She's wanting to know about the puncture wounds, and he, she was like, well, there was a lot of injuries when the body fell. Pelly then is back at the bar talking to his own doctor. And the doctor cannot dispute this because the body looks like it, it had some, some trauma <laughs> when it fell. The heart could have uh, stopped during the fall. He doesn't believe it, but he can't disprove it. They, <laughs> of course she had a heart attack. She threw herself off a castle and had a heart attack on the way down. Yeah. She died because her heart stopped. Doesn't Isn't that really yes. why everybody dies? I mean, <laughs> so... Then they start talking about what they've heard around town and that there is a, there's a vampire stories going around. And the doctor says the puncture wounds in her throat were ca- couldn't say what they're caused by. And if it were to be a vampire, then Pelly, he really needs, and just as he's saying this, a bishop walks into the bar. <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> the next shot, they're all three huddled yes. over his table what's talking going about on? what's going on. <laughs> we go back to the school. And Lestrange is drunk. He's been drinking out of um, all these what look like uh, thermoses, but they were clay pots because he would pour it and empty it and throw it and it'd smash it. But he was obviously very drunk. And so he runs into the school in the middle of the night and starts banging on Markella's, <laughs> Markella's door, <laughs> uh, shouting that he knows that someone is in there with her. And, of course, she does. She's got another uh, one of her classmates in there. Both of them are topless on the bed. And she's already bitten. So she's she's feeding on this girl. And the girl's still alive because the girl oddly is enjoying this. <laughs> oh, boy. Would you say it's odd or would you say it's It's strange. strange. <laughs> yes. The scene almost seemed kind of tacked on. I don't really know. I mean, you just hadn't seen a good vampire feeding scene the whole film, so I'm guessing that's what they were trying to do. But it did seem like it was kind of tacked on. Well, they were trying to get it in some of that vampire lover's I, action. I in guess. Uh-huh. But uh, the door's never opened, so he he then leaves and, I guess, heads back to the tavern because he needs more booze. Linda uh, sees him run off as well. As he gets uh, heading back to the the village tavern, he runs into uh, a mob that is on their march uh, back towards Karnstein Castle. You know, you got your really great mob. You've got uh, pitchforks. You've got shovels. You've got torches. 
one standard Hollywood mob was on its on its way, led by uh, Michael Pelly, or excuse me, Raymond Pelly, and also the the bishop. And they're off to Karnstein Castle to destroy the vampires. They're going to open up the crypts and and drive stakes through their hearts. The bishop is freaking out once they get there because they just want to burn down the castle, even though the bishop has told everybody, no, you don't understand. You have to chop off their heads after or stake them. Not after, necessarily. It, even after yeah. they've staked one, the, the, the townspeople start going nuts and burning the castle. Yeah. Well, there's, and there's that one shot. It's almost rather comedic. The crowd is mulling back and forth. They've got their torches or pitchforks. They're in a frenzy. The bishop pulls one of them aside and says, you don't understand. Only staking or decapitation. And there's this beat where the guy's like processing it. And then you could almost hear him say to himself, ah, fuck it. Yeah. Let's just burn it down. And turns around <laughs> and goes back to the church with the, or the castle with the torch. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mentioned at the very beginning of this that my very favorite, one of my favorite scenes in this film is the resurrection of Carmilla. One of my other favorite scenes in this movie is her death. And I like it because it is so brutal. It just, for me, kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't expect her to go out that way. I feel like I'm going to spoil it. We can spoil she the gets, ending. We get uh, Lestrange is running after them, and he's he's wanting to save uh, Markella because he's obviously in love with her, and he thinks she's in love with him. And he runs into the burning castle. Where inside the burning castle, there's this great shot because uh, the countess is in there. We've got the count and Markella. And when the, the castle starts to burn, you see the countess kind of cross his arms like, so what? Bring it. It's, this isn't going to affect yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Lestrange runs in there trying to save her. Uh, she comes running, you know, saying, get out, get out. The, the count then took, takes over Markella, and she starts to head towards Lestrange, obviously to feed on him this time. Fires raging all around them, and one of the ceiling joists breaks free on fire, on fire. at a point and falls right on Makella, staking her through the heart. And it's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. It is awesome. <laughs> it's a brutal scene that for me came out of nowhere. I didn't expect that level of traumatic violence yes it's a vampire movie they're going around they're sucking each other's bloods they're putting people in wells and all this other stuff but this was a pretty brutal out of nowhere shot for me and as soon as that that stake that beam broke loose i'm like oh my god seriously that's gonna that just happened it was pretty intense and i dug it and i thought the effects were okay i mean it was clearly a dummy but i still really enjoyed it (laughs) Probably more than I should have. Maybe it was some sort of cathartic release for having sat through the entire movie. I don't know, but there was just a finality and a brutality that I really, really enjoyed. Well, when that <laughs> happens, uh, the Count and the Countess are standing. There's there's fire between them and Lestrange. And so the two of them just kind of stand there. And at this point, you know, Tracy's watching the film with me, and I look at her, and I look, it's Karnstein Gothic. I mean, they were standing just like the the two in American Gothic, the famous painting. Yeah. They're just kind of standing there next to each uh-huh. other. Yeah. <laughs> Raymond uh, Pelly runs in after Lestrange. He pulls Lestrange out of the burning castle just as Janet shows up. Raymond takes Lestrange to Janet, put and he, he starts to 
to come out of the smoke inhalation, sees Janet, and as you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, that you didn't uh, grieve over a Macala too long because now you got Janet. <laughs> and then the credits roll. Oh God, our Father, we thank Thee for delivering us from this evil. Thy power and Thy glory have fought and vanquished these servants of the devil. For this, we offer up our humble thanks. Yes. Roll credits and scene. To be fair, uh, Janet was a. Lovely lady, in yes, she room, was, right, so. and she did not have fangs. So there's that. There's that for yeah. her. She never did the whole "if I love you, you'll die" thing. So that's a bonus. <laughs> so I gotta say, this is my birthday pick. Uh, we obviously know I'm the one that loved Vampire Lovers. I love Twins of Evil a lot, oh, and Twins of Evil is amazing. Yeah, it is definitely a different film. But this movie, I really gotta say. I kind of loved it, but not for the right reasons. As I said, technically, there's a lot of problems with this movie. But as far as just sitting back and enjoying a really campy movie for the cheesiness and the campiness and kind of the silliness and the over-the-top aspect of it, I really kind of loved it. There was a lot going on here. I thought it kind of amplified what they had set up in Vampire Lovers and went over the top with it and there's parts of it I just couldn't help but chuckle and laugh and say, man, this is pretty fun. Good for you. <laughs> well, I'm sorry if you guys don't enjoy fun, but, you know. I'm allergic to fun. For me, yeah, I can definitely see the camp aspect of it. Oh, it's... I Yeah, yeah. it's not... I don't see it as a good horror no. movie. I definitely don't see it as a good hammer horror movie. But as far as something, since I love the campiness and the kind of sleaziness and everything that they'd set up in Vampire Lovers, if you look at it from that aspect, I think this was kind of fun in that regard. Well, I wasn't a fan of Vampire Lovers. Uh, This film, I'm I'm not a fan of either. Now, I did like the special effects. Uh, I'm probably going to be sounding a lot what Derek's going to say. The resurrection and the death scene that bookend the film... I really enjoyed. I, I, I liked those. I thought they were really well done. I didn't particularly like the story. I wasn't a fan of uh, you acting ability. I mean, I know why she was hired for this role. I know why she's on screen. I wasn't convinced that she was a evil killing machine, which which is what a vampire <laughs> is. I wasn't convinced of that. And that that's my main problem with the film. I honestly think Lestrange was on his way to being an evil killing machine if they wouldn't have stopped him. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, yeah. So I have a quote from Tudor Gates, the screenwriter, about Ute. Ute came across as what she was, a beautiful woman. I thought she was very credible. If Lust for a Vampire was not a good film, it wasn't because of Ute Stensgard. Indeed, it wasn't. If anything, her glowing presence saved the film, eclipsing the lackluster dialogue with a blend of sexuality and childlike naivete, and imbuing such moments as her seduction of the late Pippa Steele with ethereal eroticism. All right, so first of all, he talks about how the dialogue is terrible, but he wrote it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and I, I would disagree with him and agree more with Scott. She is no Ingrid Pitt. 
she unfortunately spends a lot of time looking wide-eyed or making O-face that you really don't get a chance to see her act. And the fact that she's dubbed doesn't help. Yeah. And she just – there's nothing really charismatic about her for me. Yes, she's a very pretty woman. Yes, she takes her top off and, you know, she looks good. I mean, as a guy, I can appreciate that. But, I mean, I need more than that in my movies. And she just didn't grab me. If she would have <laughs> grabbed you, it might not. <laughs> you know, I was about to say that. I was like, I wonder if they're going to say, yeah, they did. I mean, I'm not going to argue the fact that she's she's definitely not another, uh, you know, she oh, definitely no. doesn't stack up to Ingrid Pitt. And she is not necessarily a great actress, but at the same time, I didn't think that she necessarily – for what I enjoyed of this movie, she didn't detract from it. And I'm not just saying boobs and blondes. I'm saying, you know, I – the the vampire that she portrayed I think fit well in here for me, and I enjoyed it. I, well, we've talked about this, that the Karnsteins are a different tribe, a different type of vampire than what we get with the Dracula films. And yeah. And that's okay. I can make that leap. I would have liked her better in the the gym teacher role. I think she yeah. would, and then you would have had an, an actress that could play evil, even a touch of evil. I mean, there was nothing evil about her at, at any point that I thought in the film. I see I honestly could I could agree that if you taken her and Janet and swapped them places, it probably would have been better. Yeah. I can see Janet as a vampire. Yeah. I see where Scott's struggling. I hear where Scott's struggling with, you know, is she an evil vampire? And in some of the research, it's kind of implied that she doesn't want to be evil anymore. That this Mirkala incarnation is truly falling for Lestrange. And I was looking for it when I watched the scene. I didn't see it. But there was one bit of research that I did that said that she even opened herself up willingly to the falling beam. Because she knew she couldn't, quote unquote, live as she was being forced to live as a Karnstein that she truly was feeling for Lestrange. And I feel like that would have been handled better by a better actress that we could see this kind of torn dual nature. You know, I'm a vampire, but I'm also somebody who's in love and, you know, I mean, it's a different style of vampire. Anyway, I don't know. It just could have been a lot better. Jimmy Sangster hated the movie, the director. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. So I got a couple things here I wanted to share with you. This is from his autobiography, Do You Want It Good or Tuesday? Lust for a Vampire. The title alone should have warned me off. One of the worst things that can happen to a director is that he be hired when the movie has been cast, the set's built, and they've dotted the I's and crossed the T's in the script. Harry Fine and Michael Stiles, the producers, checked with James Carreras once they couldn't get Fisher involved, who gave them to go ahead to hire me to direct, and Ralph Bates to take Peter's place. I wish they hadn't. Not I hasten to say because of Ralph Bates. He might have been wrong for the part, but he was the only relief from gloom on the whole picture. Example. First day's shooting. Interior set at Elstree Studios. The coach drawn by four horses is driven into the schoolyard where it pulls up. Cut, says I. Print it. Next setup. We can do better than that, came a voice from the back. It was Michael Style trying to behave the way he thought a producer should. You can do better than that. Then you shoot the fucking picture, says I, heading for the nearest exit. <laughs> End of that particular incident. End also of any rapport between me and the producers. 
He continues to say, I shot a sequence later with a bunch of sexy girls and diaphanous gowns dancing on the lawn outside the house, which was supposed to be a finishing school for young ladies. The producer said I wasn't moving the camera enough, so I shot it again, moving the camera so much nobody knew where the hell they were. And result, we used the original version, which was what I intended. Let's see, finally, he quotes Johnson and Del Vecchio from Hammer Films' Exoxid Filmography. Lust for a Vampire is one of the few Hammer horrors to have nothing to recommend it. The film was a low point for the company and is embarrassing, or should be, for all concerned, including the audience. Sangster's response? Forget the audience, guys. They couldn't have felt as embarrassed as I did. As soon as I finished shooting, I was hurried off the picture, so I had no part in the cutting or scoring. I eventually went to see it at the local cinema, hearing for the first time that dreadful song on the soundtrack, which served to compound the unpleasantness I felt over the whole sorry affair. This movie feels like it had a lot of missed opportunities for me. I was talking to Scott a little bit about this privately. This movie feels full. It was shot at Elstree. It wasn't shot at Bray, and I love Bray. The films that were shot at Elstree have a bigger feel, a more full feel. There's a lot of location stuff going on. You're actually out in the woods, in the world. You've got more people. They look crisper. The blood from the special makeup effects looks more blood-like as opposed to more fairy tale like that you would get with Terrence Fisher and the, and the Bray product. It feels like a very full movie, even right down to the score, which, save for that horrible song, feels full. Unfortunately, all the elements that you need in a film like that were not present. <laughs> and you end up with this wonderful sandbox, this great playground to tell what could be an interesting vampire story. I mean, you've got a castle, you've got a finishing school, you've got these women running around, you've got missing villagers. You've got you know, this wonderful potential and... It just felt squandered, very paint-by-numbers, but it's like a paint-by-numbers that somebody was trying to use crayons on. Scott, you asked a question at the very beginning of this. Where do we rank this, and how do we rank yes, the three How, how, how do you rank films? the Karnstein films? They go from best to worst, from Vampire Lovers, Twins of Evil, to Lust for a Vampire. How about you, Derek? I would go Twins first, because Twins has Peter Cushing in that wonderful role. Plus, I love the music in that film over the other two. Then I would go to uh, Ingrid Pitts in The Vampire Lovers, and then... Lust for a Vampire. Well, Twins, obviously, uh, by far, is my favorite. And then uh, earlier you said that uh, Captain Kronos could be considered, so I would put that at number two. (laughs) (laughs) And then a tie for last between Vampire Lovers and Lust for a Vampire. Well, you really did not like Vampire Lovers, huh? This movie is worse than Vampire Lovers. Vampire Lovers is so much better. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the direction and the competence of the storytelling, Vampire Lovers is, is head and shoulders. And I think a good way for me to frame it, uh, my enjoyment of this movie and what I like about it is it feels like a soap opera, a.k.a. Dallas, which I love. I love the campy soap opera-ness of it. It does have like a late night yeah. primetime drama, doesn't it? I agree. It yeah, I agree with that. I enjoy Dallas a lot, oddly enough, just because I love the over the topness of it and how crazy it is. So there is a level of camp to this that you didn't see in Twins of Evil no. at all. Well, either way, it's Celeste of the Three Carnstones. I mean, there's some interesting points and, and some interesting things going on here. It's an interesting time in Hammer history. It's 1971. It's after the heyday of Bray. Could have been so much better, though. It really could have. And it was when they made Twins of Evil. Because that also has that full feeling that I'm talking about. 
it feels like a bigger movie. It feels like it's out in the world and there's a lot of things happening. And that is where it works. <laughs> Ralph Bates also hated the movie. He said it was not just the worst movie he was ever in, but the worst movie ever. So I think he would probably agree that this is the lesser <laughs> of the three Karnstein <laughs> There's a very popular image of you sitting, I believe, on a bed with her shirt pulled down. And she's got blood coming out of her mouth and her chest is bare and just covered in blood. It was a very famous promotional shot. Doesn't appear anywhere in the movie. I thought it showed up in the flashback to her resurrection. Not to this extreme. Yeah, that's true. They did show yeah. it more of a flash and at a different angle. It's also the image that appears on the cover of Hammer Films, the Elstree Studio Years, which I unfortunately don't own, so I couldn't reference it for this show. It's out of print and sells for over $100 so, used. So, But uh, yeah, that's the film. There you go. I don't know if it's something that we're going to take Casey's birthday away over, but... No. no. <laughs> okay, okay. You know what? We talked about ranking it against the Karnstein films. Ranking it against She and the Old Dark House, where would you put it? Uh, I like this far better. Um, it would be below those two. Nah, for me it'd be yes. this. Really? For me it'd be this old dark house, and then she. Wow, he really didn't like she. Old, old yeah. dark house would be the best of those three. I don't know which would I put two for three. I, I think I would put she above this. Wow! Wow! All right. Well, I'm interested to hear what the listeners think about the show, about the movie. Interesting to hear, hear what they say about the show too. <laughs> well, there's that, too. How do they do that, Well, they Scott? can send us email at podcast at 1951downplace.com or send an MP3 file to that address. Or they can call us at area code 765-203-1951 and leave us a voicemail that has to be uh, three minutes or less. You can also find us at 1951downplace.com or in Facebook. If you search for 1951downplace, you'll find our Facebook group. Speaking of the Facebook uh, page and group, Mark Leeper left a couple of comments about some previous episodes, which we'll talk about in next month's release. We're also going to go over the feedback that we've received in next month's episode as well. Uh, just because of scheduling and timing and everything, we're going to go ahead and push up back to the next episode, which will be happening at the end of this month, where we're going to be talking about another Frankenstein film. Yes, we are going to be uh, watching Evil of Frankenstein for March's episode. We're going to follow yeah. that up in April with Captain Clegg. That's going to be a special crossover episode with my other podcast, uh, Disney Indiana, where I'm hopefully uh, going to have uh, Derek and Casey join me over there to talk about uh, Dr. Sin, which is Disney's take on the same uh, source material, same story well as uh, Captain Clegg. That'll be fun. I've seen Captain Clegg, it's, or The Night Creatures, as it's called over here. It's a great film. And then after that, we're diving into Sword of Sherwood Forest, which is another Peter Cushing. Man, we're doing Peter Cushing, Peter Cushing, Peter Cushing. Three I, in a row. We've been doing this for like a year or two now. That's not a surprise, man. That's, well, we, we, haven't done it, we haven't done a Cushing <laughs> film since Cash on Demand. No, that's no the Gorgon. So we just skipped this month. Yeah. So we need to rectify that by having several Cushing films in a row. And it was almost a Cushing film, so. Yes. And he <laughs> was mentioned true. in the intro, so we got, it, got his name in there pretty early. <laughs> that's true. That's true. 
Then we're going to be diving into Nightmare from 1964 that does not have Peter Cushing in it. And then July is our listener pick month. A quick note about that. If you go over to our Facebook group, there is a survey set up to where you can vote for what you want to have be the film that we cover Right now, month. right now we're again, going to be covering Quatermass in the Pit for the first time in July, and then we're going to cover it again in November. So I can't wait to cover it twice. As I was about to say, again, <laughs> go over to our website at 1951downplace.com, click on the episode list, and you'll see all the movies that we've already scheduled for the rest of the year. There is no need for you to vote for a movie we're always <laughs> we're already going to cover. So don't waste your vote. You can only vote once. So don't waste your vote in voting for a movie that we've already picked. Let your voice be heard. I think and the, if you take out, Quaker I think the listeners the pitch, want us to cover it twice. I, you know, <laughs> I want to cover she twice, but you won't let me. So let's, <laughs> I just want people to be able to uh, change their vote and, and make sure that they pick a movie that they really want us to cover that month. Four-Sided Triangle appears to be in the lead right now, but you've also got Hands of the Ripper, Rasputin, the Mad Monk. And uh, The Mystery of the Mary Celeste is making an appearance, which is the only Hammer film that Bella Lugosi st- starred in. So I'm excited about that, maybe. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, the deadline for that is May 31st. Uh, until the next episode of 1951 Down Place, Scott mentioned his other podcast. You can find him at Disney Indiana. You can find Casey over at Bloody Good Horror, and you can find me over at Monster Kid Radio. Uh, I encourage you to check those out between episodes. Keep Scott, Derek, and Casey in your ears nonstop until then. That doesn't sound <laughs> creepy at all, right? <laughs> Also, as a personal plug, uh, I would recommend that everybody go check out the latest issue of Scary Monsters Magazine, issue number 91. My article, Monster Kids with Microphones, appears in that magazine. And Scott and Casey were kind enough to answer a few questions for me about how they got involved in horror podcasting and 1951 Downplay, specifically in that article. They also talk about Monster Kid Radio, the Creature Feature Podcast, B-Movie Cast, and a few others. So find that on the shelf of your bookstore if there is one near you. Otherwise, order it online. That was nice of us, yes, Scott, it was. wasn't it? I'm waiting for my residual check. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else before we sign off? I think we're golden, pony boy. We made it all the way to the end without mentioning Joni Loves Chachi. I know. We're slipping. It's that damn song. Can you imagine if Joni and Chachi had sung Strange Love? That would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Cushing was originally going to play the lead role of Giles Barton, but backed out to care for his wife, and Ingrid Pitt turned down the offer to return as Camilla because she didn't care for the strip. Freudian slip there. Picks up the goblet, and he starts uh, this ending... Indignation? Not indignation. I can't say <laughs> oh, that word. Oh, this film was an indignation. <laughs> Incantation. Incantation.
Now kiss me. 